Well, my name is Chad. I'm one of the pastors here at Calvary, and I'm so honored to get to be here with you and share the message from God's Word today. It's always something I look forward to, and I just thank Pastor Julio for giving me the chance and the opportunity to do this. I get to do it a couple times a year, and it's always highlights for me. And uh, so thank you for, for being here, and thank you for, for listening as we get into our sermon. <clears throat> you know, this is the season, <clears throat> you all are aware of it, that we, uh, we see hurricanes uh, and hurricanes are always interesting. They're, they're kind of a phenomenon that is odd to explain. You know, they start out as basically a thunderstorm, something really small, a little low pressure system that develops off the coast of Africa. That seems like a long ways from here, right? But this little thing that develops off the coast of Africa can gain momentum and gain strength and work its way all the way across the Atlantic Ocean and begin to cause problems on this side of the world. It just seems like a whole different place. And yet, like you saw this last week, it can, re it can wreak havoc and devastation um, anywhere it might go. A few years ago, NASA put out a statistic I thought was interesting. I saw this week that one average hurricane can exert the energy equivalent to 10,000 nuclear bombs. 10,000 nuclear bombs. So you might have seen some funny jokes these last few weeks that are making fun of our president because he made a comment about, can we just nuke a hurricane a while back? Well, 10,000 nuclear bombs one nuclear bomb doesn't stop 10,000, right? The, the energy equivalent is just astronomical. So uh, one nuclear bomb against a hurricane is like a BB gun against a freight train. It's just not gonna stop it, right? And, uh, and you get this idea. So uh, just keeping that in mind, this small little storm can gather this strength and it can do so much bad stuff. Um, I just got a couple pictures, and I'm sure you saw them this week, of Hurricane Dorian. So if, if an average hurricane can do that, 10,000 atom bombs, imagine an, a, a category five storm, right? It's multiplied an average storm many times over. And so you saw what happened as that storm ran over and spent all that time over the, the Bahamas this week. You see the pictures like this one of just the, the devastation that is, that is wreaked on this place. Um, I think probably anyone that lives along the Gulf Coast has seen their own experiences with, with, with hurricanes and tropical storms and uh, the flooding that comes with it, the storm that comes with it. Well, today we're talking about uh, Ephesians chapter 1, and Paul starts to talk about this power that God gives the church, this power that raised Christ from the dead. And I, I find it a very similar kind of a thing, if you're wondering how do you jump from hurricanes and nuclear bombs to... Um, Ephesians chapter 1, is he talks about this power that we have that has raised Christ from the dead and is made available to God's people. And if you think about the, the impact of what started in this little tiny town in Bethlehem, then Galilee and Nazareth, that turned into 12 disciples, that turned into a few more and then a few more. And then here we are 2,000 years later, many generations of, of families and many more generations of disciples in churches that have been planted. And now this movement spans 2,000 years and in some estimates around a billion or two billion people that call themselves Christ followers on the planet. And you think about how that affects that eternity for them. And the power that's represented in this gospel is so much more than any hurricane or nuclear bomb could, could ever bring or imagine because it impacts lives not just for a short time but forever, forever. And so as we start looking at these passages, I, I want you to think about the impact that, that one believer can have over a lifetime or for eternity as God uses it. 
Before we jump into our Ephesians passage, I want to set a little bit of context for you. Uh, last week was our first sermon in Ephesians, and Julio was able to give us some context, but I want to add a little bit for you today. And so I want you to know a little bit about the, the, the people who this book was written to, who this letter was written to. Paul wrote the letter, we, we call it the book to, uh, of, the, of Ephesians, that the letter was to the people and the churches in the area around Ephesus. And, uh, and for us to understand what that means, we need to go back to the, the, the book of Acts. Acts chapter 19, uh, Paul's third missionary journey is where he spends time in this city called Ephesus. And uh, you have to go back a little bit further even to understand why Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians is so different than the letters to the Galatians or First and Second Thessalonians. Because Paul wrote a lot of letters, right? And if you open your Bible, you probably notice that Galatians and then Ephesians and then Philippians and then Colossians, well, those are all very different letters written with very different purposes and at very different times. For instance, the book of Galatians was written right after, right after Paul's first missionary journey. It very likely was the first book of the New Testament that was written down. So before there was any Gospels, before there was a book of Romans, before there was First and Second Corinthians and all these other letters, probably Galatians is, is one of the first, if not the first. Okay, and then after that, he wrote First and Second Thessalonians, he wrote First and Second Corinthians, and then he wrote Romans, and all of those books were to new churches. And when I say new churches, I mean brand new churches. Like the book of First Thessalonians was written within six months of the planting of the church in Thessalonica. So all the believers who that letter was written to are new believers. So he's trying to help them grow in Christ and trying to help them learn how to be faithfully following Jesus. Remember that when these letters are being written, there's no gospels. They're not flipping over to the Gospel of Mark and trying to understand what Jesus' teachings were. None of those were written down yet, at least not that we have copies of. And so they, they put the Gospel of Mark at 67 AD as the kind of early authorship as probably the first, but there's some argument, or rather Matthew was first or, or whatnot, but, but just think about this. This one is written around 63, so four years before the first gospel is written down is when, when Paul writes this letter to the Ephesians. Now he writes it about eight years after he's finished working in, in Ephesus. So he spends this time, let's look real quick at Acts chapter 19. You see kind of what happens while he's in Ephesus. In Acts chapter 19, in verse nine, it says that Paul took the disciples with him and had discussions daily with them in the hall of Tyrannus. And this went on for two years. And listen to this last passage. So that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province, the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So think about this. This is, the, the, this is really the focus of Paul's third missionary journey. And if you think about the three journeys together... The first journey, he goes through Galatia. It's kind of haphazard. He has lots of crazy things that happen. He's shipwrecked. He's, according to Galatians, almost dying when he gets to Galatia. They nurse him back to health. Then he goes to one of the towns called Lystra, and they stone him until he's almost dead or is dead. The believers gather around him and pray for him, and he walks back into the city. The first missionary journey was very difficult for Paul. But then the second missionary journey, it seems like he doesn't have much of a plan. He goes through the churches in Galatia, and then it says that he was going to go to Asia, which is what we're talking about here, Ephesus. It says the Holy Spirit prevents him. So then he turns to go north into an area called Bithynia, and it says the Holy Spirit prevented them there as well. Then he has a dream about a man saying, come over here in Macedonia. So you have three different Holy Spirit interactions on that second journey, the, the preventing from Asia, preventing from Bithynia, and then the dream that calls them into Macedonia. And so they go over there and plant churches in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. They go down and minister in Athens and eventually land in, in Corinth. 
And you're like, okay, here we go. We're fast forwarding through this whole thing. So we get to the third journey. Paul plants Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus. They're like the advanced team. They stay there. And Paul goes back to Jerusalem and then begins to collect basically his best. He gets the best disciples that he's gained in these first two journeys. And he takes them with him to Ephesus and they stay there for two years. And you might call this the, the, the third journey, I'd say is the culmination of Paul's missionary journeys. Everything that he's learned, everything that he's gained, all comes together and they spend two years together in Ephesus, planting the church in Ephesus. But what does it tell us? That verse we just read, it says that, that all the Jews and Greek throughout the entire province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So what does this tell us about this group of people that Paul had assembled? Did they stay only in the city of Ephesus? No. They started going throughout the region. How else do all the Jews and Greeks throughout the entire region hear the word of the Lord? So Paul had invested himself in these disciples and invested himself in other disciples and those disciples moved outwards until he could say that everyone in the region had access to Jesus. And that's a powerful thing. This is the most populated area of the Roman Empire aside from Italy. They estimate around 10 to 15 million people lived in the province of Asia. Just to keep that in perspective, the population of Texas is 26 million. So let's just say two thirds of Texas lived there and in two years, Paul could say that everyone had access to the gospel. That's a pretty strong statement, don't you think? Okay, so eight years later, Paul is in house arrest. He's in Rome, he can't leave, he's chained to a guard. We know more about that because later he uses that as an analogy for part of Ephesians chapter six. He's changed to a guard and he writes this letter to the church of Ephesus, which is actually the church of Asia Minor. And he includes all those places. I got a quick, uh, uh, a little picture for you that includes just some of the locations so you can get a sense of where we're talking here. On the bottom right is Jerusalem, okay? Antioch on the top right there. And over there in the middle, there's a cluster of three. The one on the far left is Ephesus. It's right on the coast. And then just inside of that are two cities. I want you to know where they're at. One is called Colossae. It's the letter of the Colossians was written to them. And the other one is Laodicea. And I just want to mention that because if you're familiar with John's letters in Revelation, all seven letters are also here in this province of Asia. The seven cities that he writes to in Revelation are all in this area as well. And so you have Ephesus and Colossae. Colossae is the one on the right. Ephesus is the one on the left. They're 100 miles apart. Okay, so they're not that far. Um, the whole region there is kind of, that's the province of, of Asia Minor, and that's the province that this letter was written to. Okay, so why am I taking so much time to try to explain to you about these churches and about this letter? Because the letter is very unique in Paul's letters. It's the only letter that we have that we know is written to a mature, believing church. The church is eight years old. All of the other letters are written to churches that are much, much younger. He's trying to help them establish good practice. Here, he's trying to sustain good practice. He wants them to understand what it means to live the gospel for a long time. And I think it has a lot of parallels to who we are as a church here today. And I think there's a lot of things that we need to gain from, under, from, from looking at Ephesians and taking it to heart. When Paul was writing the letter, he's thinking about people like you and I who've been Christians for a while. And he's wanting us to understand that we have a deep calling and that he can sustain us for years to come. He's thinking about people like you and me. And I think that that's so important. So when we read this here today, and we're gonna do it in just a moment, we're gonna read these verses from, from Ephesians. I want you to, to hear it as Paul is writing to you. 
I want you to hear him talking to you as a leader of the church, as a leader of the gospel in the region. We would call this region the Rio Grande Valley. You might think that this letter is to more than a church. It's to many churches spread out across the region. So, would you stand with me as we read God's word? We're going to read this in Ephesians chapter 1, 15 through 23. Here's what it says. It says, For this reason... Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all his people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his people and in his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, for far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that can be invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray, God, that today you would open our hearts to be able to understand these words. We pray, Father, that the understanding would mean practical movement in our lives, Father, that we would obey your word, that, God, we'd be practitioners of the gospel. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. When I read this, I love Paul's passion. You can't see it without thinking about how, how much he loved the church. The first thing he says is, I, when I think about you, I rejoice with what God has done inside of you. I love that he says, when I heard about you. Again, it helps us understand that this letter is not to a specific person, and very likely it's to people that Paul expects has never, never seen him or met him before. <clears throat> he says, I keep asking our God the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you, and then he gives us a couple things that he specifically asked for. One is the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. <clears throat> I love this. Think about this. The early church, the Christian church, this church that Paul's writing to, this collection of churches across Asia Minor, they don't have a Bible. They don't have this thing that we have. So where do they get their guidance? Where do they get inspiration, where do they get revelation of who God is? Well, Paul is saying you get it from the spirit that lives inside of you. You get it from, from, from banding together and working together. So the early church is completely and utterly dependent on God's spirit to lead and guide them in a very real and practical way. They don't have Bibles, they don't have seminaries, they can't just pop in a Beth Moore study. They can't show up on Sunday and have Pastor Julio open the scriptures and, and take, take it out for them. They're, they're doing their best to follow God with what they've been given, and that's a collection of Jesus' stories. It may be a letter or so from Paul. Maybe they've read these other letters that Paul had written, right? They may have, if they have a synagogue in their town, they may have some Old Testament scrolls that they can get access to. But by and large, they don't have many of the resources that we rely on all the time today. And so Paul's asking, he's praying that God would reveal to them the spirit so that they can understand how to follow God better. The next thing he prays that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened 
in order that you would know him. And this, this eyes of your heart enlightened is the same kind of thing where Paul's asking God to open their, their hearts so that they can respond to these different things. There's three things that he lists that he asks God to open their hearts so that they'll respond to. The first one is the hope to which he had called you. Open, their, open the eyes of their heart so that they can understand the hope to which he has called you. This word hope is a defining word in Christianity. It, it's the basis for so much. The, this idea that what we can expect, hope is another word for expect. We expect God to fulfill his promises. That's hope. We also use the word faith to, to, to kind of mean the same thing. You think about this, this idea in Hebrews chapter 11, one of my favorite chapters in scripture, starts in, in verse one by saying, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance in what we do not see. This idea of the hope that we have in Christ is the hope for salvation, it's the hope for forgiveness, it's the hope for redemption, it's the hope for deliverance, it's the hope for community, it's the hope for acceptance, it's the hope for purpose. We could go on and on and on. This hope defines us as believers. So he says, open their hearts so they can be the people that hope to what God has called us to. The next thing is that he would open our hearts to see the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Now this is a very cumbersome statement. What does it mean to, to, to live out the riches of God's glorious inheritance in his people? When I see this, what I realize is that God is calling us as a church to reflect the glory of God to each other. So this, this glorious inheritance is not the glorious inheritance we'll have one day in heaven. It reads like that. Normally when you think about God's glory or you think about eternal inheritance, you jump right to what's gonna happen after we die, right? But in this instance, he's talking about the glorious inheritance that we receive as his people, as we gather together. And you realize that, that Paul understands the body of Christ is best understood as a collective group of all of the followers of God together. And that this inheritance is including everybody. You realize one of the greatest elements of being a follower of Jesus is to be part of the body of Christ. The fact that we get to see other believers and fellowship with them, that we get to gain from one another, and it's not financial, it's so much more than that. Right, my, my, my friend Jeff, I know Jeff, I, I've spent a lot of time with Jeff, and because I know Jeff, I know that he makes my life better. I hope I make his life better, but it's in, it's in that relationship that the body of Christ becomes so valuable. Every one of us as followers of Jesus has something to contribute and in that, the body of Christ is part of the glorious inheritance that we receive as Christians. So Paul is saying that their eyes may be open, that they'd be able to see the hope to which God has called them, that they'd be able to see the glorious inheritance that they have as being God's people. And then lastly, he says that they would understand the incomparably great power that God has reserved for those who believe. And he goes on to describe the power. He said, it's the same power, the same mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, that's better than all the emperors or presidents, power and dominion, every name that is invoked, that means other gods that people might swear by, Jesus is greater than them. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Not just when Paul was writing this, but also today in our lives. And God placed all things under his feet. We're talking about Jesus. And he appointed him to be the head over everything for the church. 
So Jesus is our leader. If we follow him, he's the leader. And then I love this. Look at 23. So if you finish it, that he's the head over everything for the church, which is his body. What's his body? The church. The church is what he's talking about. And then he says, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So this is, this is a concept that we should talk about more. But it's this idea that, that the body of Christ, the church, God's collective followers that live in this world, and we gather together as followers of Jesus so we could say this church, this gathering here, represents the fullness of God who fills everything in every way. Another way to say it is that we're the physical incarnation of Jesus in the world today. When people see, when, when outsiders, lost people see the church, they should see what? Jesus. They should see Jesus. How do we, how do we become like Christ? How do, we, how do we grow like Christ? And then again, we get back to that incomparable riches, this glorious inheritance that God gives us. Jesus said he placed all things under his feet and that he is the head of everything, the fullness of him, everything in every way. That's the church. So what I want you to see here is that Paul's expectation is that this collection of churches around Asia Minor will represent him in the fullness of Christ to the lost people that they see every single day. It was more than just they would receive the eternal inheritance of being Christians. It was that the church would be available to everyone. And so we need to redefine church. The church is not where believers gather. The church is the gathering of believers together. So wherever you gather, wherever we go, wherever we are, the church is. You get what I'm saying? So I know today when we talk about where do you go to church, oh, I go to church at Calvary. It's located at, you know, the corner of 16th and Harvey. And, but that's not the church. The church is the people. It never has been a place. It has always been people. So one of the things we have to realize is that when we gather like this, it's also not much church. Now, I, I, forgive me, I might just bother you just for a moment, but the church is, is represented in a, in a community that loves each other and knows each other. And I'm sad to say, many of you, I don't know at all. I've been at Calvary for seven years and some of you I know really, really well and you've blessed me. You've made my life better. And I hope, like I said about Jeff, I hope I made your life better. But the church as it's supposed to be lived out is supposed to be lived out in small community. So then what this would represent is a gathering of many small communities. You could say many churches. Right? And, and so I want you to know that that's actually very true here at Calvary. We have a lot of small groups that gather together on Sunday mornings. Um, the best way to experience church here at Calvary is to be involved in an adult Bible fellowship. Maybe that's one way. A home fellowship for people that aren't able to be here on Sunday mornings. We have different groups meeting on different nights in different places around the, the area. We have student fellowships for young adults. We have children fellowships for, for, for our kids. We have so many different groups. We have groups that gather food and give it away once a month. We have groups that gather toys and give it away at Christmas. We have groups doing a lot of things. And in every single one of those groups, there's a small smaller community. 
Now maybe the communities aren't as intentional as I would like. Maybe they're not praying together as much as I would like. Maybe they're not trying to encourage each other to grow. But the idea is that in small communities, people know you and you're known by them and you know them. It makes it where you can grow together. And so when Jeff is telling me, hey brother, I have this problem, I can pray. When I see Jeff, it's so much more than just a guy that I met on Sunday morning and I shake his hand every now and then. I know him. I know what's going on in his life. I know what's going on in his family and I can pray with him and pray for them and I can encourage him. He can challenge me. Hey, Chad, man, I know we've been talking a lot, but why are you living like this? Why are you saying these things? Like, I know you. You need to do a little bit better. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, you're right. It can help me grow and help me encourage. The church needs to be smaller. The community needs to be smaller. In all of these places where Paul was writing this letter, they didn't have professionally trained pastors that were leading the churches. They had people who followed Jesus and stepped into leadership roles to try to encourage others. Today we use the word laity to talk about people who are normal church followers having a role in church, the lay leaders. But it really is a sad thing that we have a definition between clergy and, clergy and laity because it really defines professionals and non-professionals within the church. In the first century, there's really not that distinction. There's followers of Jesus, and some of them lead. <laughs> They're all followers of Jesus. He's the head of the church, not the pastor. The pastor facilitates community that loves each other and grows each other and challenges each other and reaches out to the lost around them. So what are some implications? The first one I would say is that the lost world desperately needs the church to be the church. They don't need us to be gatherings by the thousands. They need the church to overflow with the fullness of Christ in every way, like Paul was writing. That he's the head of the church and the fullness of Christ in every way is filled out. The world is full of, of, of people who are hurting. Two billion people today live on less than $2 a day. Half of those live on less than a dollar a day. Poverty, sickness, famine, natural disease, war, man's depravity, we make so many major mistakes, keep the world in a state of chaos. The only remedy is a church. It's the loving people of God who love God in a way that makes the world have hope. The hope of the gospel is built in you and I, the incarnation of Christ in the world today. So that's the first implication. The world desperately needs the church to be the church. The second thing is the church needs each other. We cannot live in isolation. If you come in here and nobody knows you, don't let it stay that way. Become a part of a group so you can know and be known. We don't just need you to show up so that you can give money sometime. That's not the point. We need you to show up because you have something more. In Christ, in you, we find something different than I find anywhere else. If I get to know Marco Ramos, I find Jesus and Marco looks very different than Jesus and Ron. But both of them have something very significant to contribute. Do you get what I'm saying? Everyone is needed for the body of Christ to operate well. So please, don't be a stranger. Get involved, get to know people. We need each other. And the last thing is the church needs to be smaller. I'm not saying we need to kick people out of Calvary. What I'm saying is our communities need to be tighter. We need to be able to love each other well. And to do that, we need to be in small groups regularly. Join an ABF, be a part of a home fellowship. If you don't know how to join one, then we can help you start a new one. You can fill it up with your own friends. 
We can teach you how to be a conduit of the gospel to the people in your lives. They bear one another's burdens. They are what the church is supposed to be. If you've never been a part of a church like that, please help us connect you so that you can experience the church as it's meant to be. The last thing is that every member has value. Every member has something to contribute. You know, we always, when we use the words contribute, we talk about your investment, it always goes to financial. But the really simple rule is if your heart's not invested, your money doesn't make a difference. It's supposed to, it's supposed to be the other way around. You invest your finances where your heart is engaged. We want your heart to be engaged. And if God would call you to use your finances, that's up to you. But we want your heart. God wants your heart. That's the thing that he is most concerned about. And when we know your heart, we know who you are. So invest yourself. And just like this hurricane season, a small storm off the coast of Africa that may not even make it on anyone's radar can turn into a hurricane that can impact many lives. So can one disciple. One disciple, you might feel like you have nothing and you can't contribute anything. And if you trust and put your hope in Christ, he can use you to do great things. That's the Apostle Paul's story. The Apostle Paul is that hurricane. He's a nobody. He calls himself the chief of sinners. He says the least among the disciples. He says he is the worst. And yet here we are 2,000 2000 years later talking about the impact that the hurricane Apostle Paul continues to make in the world today, in us and the world around us. So as we close, I want to encourage you to do three things. One, Join an ABF or a home fellowship. And if you don't know how, come and find me after service. Talk to one of the pastors. We'd love to connect you. Uh, Here at the end of the service, we're going to invite ABF leaders and home group leaders to come to the front. So if you want to meet them, they'll be here as we finish the service. If you're not sure how to do that, learn how to share the gospel. Learn how to be a condom to the gospel so that you can see people day in and day out and extend the kingdom through your life. I can't wait for the day where we can have a map of all the places where Calvary members live and see that as lighthouses of hope throughout the Rio Grande Valley because some of us are spread out many miles from, from here at Harvey and 16th. If you're not sure how to become a disciple maker or how to share the gospel, come to one of our classes. We're starting this Wednesday night on how to be disciple makers. Learn how to get connected. We have so many ways to connect. We have men's huddles. We have women's classes. We have so many ways you can connect. Get connected. We cannot live in isolation. So as we close, I want to pray for you. I want to pray for you. I want to invite you to to think about a few things. One is, if you've never made Jesus the king of your life, now's the time. This king has been changing lives throughout history. And if he comes into your heart and fills you up, not only will you get to be part of of that eternal salvation that he'll give, he'll turn you into a person filled with hope, but he'll also connect you to a community that's filled with all of those things, the fullness of Christ found in his people. Secondly, it's for your church. It's those of you who have been here for a long time. God has a plan for you to impact this entire region. Every single one of us is an ambassador of, the, of, the, uh, of God's gospel, the hope that God gives us. And so learn how. If you're not sure, then become sure. We can help you become sure. We can help you learn how to share the gospel. And lastly, get connected. Connect to one of the groups that are here. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up and we're going to 
um, sing a song. And as we do, we'll have some pastors here that are available. And uh, we'd like to pray for you uh, if you want to make one of those decisions. At the end of the service, like, like I mentioned, we're going to have the ABF leaders come up at the very end. And, uh, and they'll be available to, to share with you about their groups. Wednesday night, we have classes starting here on campus. We have a, a class that's called Becoming Disciple Makers in the multi-purpose room. If you want to come and learn how to, to move forward in a strategy that can help you reach, the, reach people for the gospel, then, uh, then that'd be a great place to start. So um, we're going to pray and then we'll, we'll continue our worship. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing yourself to us through... These, these pages through your servant, Paul. We thank you for, for recording it so that we could see and hear and understand what you were doing then and see that you're still doing it today. Open our hearts, Father. Help us to respond to your word. In Jesus' name we pray.